Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Frank Warren, Dennis Balthaser, they tell me they have known each other for years and never before appeared on a radio show together. Frank, is that correct? That's a fact. You know, it's a, a joy to do this, uh, quite frankly. Uh, Dennis and I have often joked uh, about uh, getting myself and Stan and, uh, and Scott Ramsey and all of us together, and, and I've often said, well, you know, we're putting the band back together. We've got Balthazer on the drums and Stan playing fiddle. I've got lead guitar and Scott doing vocals. So, so this is a big kick for me. Well, we can have David on the guitar, too. Yeah, yeah, we have dueling guitars going. You betcha. Excellent. I can do that. Yeah, I'll man the boards because I don't play guitar anymore. No, my son plays guitar decently. He also plays violin. I don't either, but, uh, but Dennis certainly is a great musician. Is Ringo free now? Oh, stop it. Dennis is the drummer. You're not listening to what Frank's saying. Dennis is the drummer, and, you know, the drummer is the foundation of the band. That's the deal. That's, That's the rhythm. Right, but I like, to, I like to play lead, and that doesn't go over well. No, well, it's okay. We'll, we'll let you do your Keith Moon thing. It'll be fine. Okay. <laughs> Just take the drum solos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you can be like some of those drummers of old where they would take a 20-minute solo. Mm-hmm. And everybody else will leave the stage because they have nothing to do. Hey, we got a lot to do, guys. Now, maybe you weren't acquainted with him personally, but we all knew and respected John Keel, who made a huge, as they say, a huge presence in the UFO field. You know, in recent years, he'd been in ill health. He died recently, and we, of course, have had a special all-star tribute. But did either of you gentlemen know him at all? I didn't. Uh, I just found out about it. I've been out of pocket for a week, and then had the the Roswell festivals, and I just picked up on on the internet where he had passed away. But I I had never met him. No. Same same could be said for me. I didn't know him personally either. But of course, we all know of him. And uh, Lauren Coleman was kind enough to allow me to publish his obituary, a uh, very detailed obituary, uh, based on his personal knowledge and knowing him as a friend. And that was really informative and and uh, well and sad in a sense in in uh, how he came to be it towards the end of his life, uh, given all of his contributions and, and what he has done in his life. It's kind of sad there the last couple of years, from what I understand. Mm. Yeah, I know we once tried to have him on the show. I think, David, you talked to him, right? I actually called and left a message, and I think he had called uh, Beckley or Mosley saying, who, who is this guy? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I called him up, and, and I, of course, you know, intimately familiar with his work, and uh, he was one of the giants. By the time this show airs, people have heard our, our big tribute thing, which hopefully paid the man justice. It's interesting. I called Keel also, and I got him to answer the phone. I started mentioning the Paracast, and he said, you want me to come on the air? Click. <laughs> Was he accessible in his later years? Not super. No, I'll tell you, I did get to see him last time, probably in the early 90s. I was still living in New York City, and he and Beckley were sponsoring a regular weekly or monthly lecture series. Whitley Strieber had shown up. Keel made an occasional presentation. It was a very nice environment. Another time, I was in New York City. I finished my business. I called Keel. This must be in the mid or late 70s. And I said, what's happening? He said, you know, why don't you come over? We'll talk. And we had tea or coffee or something, and we spent several hours just rapping. But later on, he became, as he became more affected by his various illnesses, 
he didn't want to communicate with people at all. Let's move back to one of the focuses of our, our discussion. Dennis, they had another Roswell Festival this year. Before we get into that in more detail, what did you think of the turnout and everything else? Is it still dragging in a lot of people? Surprisingly, with the economy and gas prices and things like that, I was anticipating a smaller crowd. I haven't seen numbers yet, but based on people at the convention center and people in town walking around downtown, I think it's probably as good as any we've had in recent years, attendance-wise. They weren't real big spenders, although I, I did well at my table with my DVDs and things like that. Good attendances at the, the lectures. And this year we had three festivals because the museum can't work or don't want to work with the city. Now we've had the city festival for the last three years, plus the UFO Museum Festival. And then this year, Guy Malone local had a religious seminar which was sparsely attended, but uh, attended. There were actually three festivals here in town, which is unfortunate when you have a town as small as this, people should be able to get along with each other and combine it and have a good festival. It still has the carnival atmosphere, which is a serious researcher I'm not crazy about that understands that it brings in revenue. And there were a lot of activities, uh, not UFO-related uh, sports events and a lot of things for kids. They had a couple of big concerts. Jefferson, Jefferson uh, Starship was here. The Temptations were here. Uh, big fireworks display. So that kind of thing that people enjoy was, was good. Well, that's the thing here. Is Roswell now pretty much more of a tourist attraction and a subject of tourism, or is there still some research going on? I think that's the biggest concern of all. Yes, to both. Tourism is the main thing for Roswell. If it wasn't for the UFO activity, there wouldn't be anything in Roswell because we're 200 miles from anywhere. You don't come to Roswell unless you have a purpose of going through to somewhere else. And the museum continues to get 150,000 people a year, which is big business for, for the city. Uh, serious researchers, MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, put on the lecture series for the city festival this year. And Peter Robbins was again the host, uh, introducing people and kind of railroading it. We had Nick Pope from England, Richard Karen Dolan, Travis Walton, Fire in the Sky. Jesse Marcel Jr. was here and was awarded the first of an annual award for Roswell and Ball people. Uh, Cameron Grant, who has presidential UFOs, James Carrion, who's the head of MUFON and myself were all speakers for the city. The museum had their regulars, Stanton Friedman, Don Schmidt, Tom Perry, Daryl Sims, and a few others. Okay, so at least things are going on, but as far as information, are we getting any more new information about what happened? Well, there's a guy that apparently Perry and Schmidt found this guy or contacted him a couple months ago, and apparently in their latest edition of their book, talk about him, and he, I met him. He's an 85-year-old gentleman from Alabama who said he was on the airplane that took the debris to Fort Worth and had a long discussion with him. We still get witnesses once in a while, but we're running out of time. The guys that were involved are 80 years old or better if they're still alive. And our hope now is for deathbed confessions that uh, maybe we can get some of those before time takes all of them. Dennis, did this gentleman give you any new insights into the into the event? Anything that you hadn't heard before? Because you, you've spoken to, to so many people. 
you've probably heard just about everything about this case. Did this fellow give you any new insights, any new information? Well, he, he did talk about uh, loading the boxes up in the, the airplane, having military police there, and not knowing what was in the boxes. And when they got to Fort Worth and unloaded everything, they were told, gentlemen, you have just been part of history. Hmm. And not told anything else. And back then, they didn't question it and came back to the basement about their business and didn't think much of it. Years and years later, he's 85 years old. His son was talking to him, and they got to mentioning Roswell. He said that he was involved with delivering the material to Fort Worth. And they did some checking, got a hold of Schmidt and Carey, I guess, and, and then interviewed him. But I got the impression, talking to him, that there's some memory loss with age there, and I'm not sure of all the things he was saying, if they're accurate. I haven't been able to verify any of that yet. But I think he was involved, but I, I don't know what extent. Based on the events that were happening at Roswell, I mean, did you sit in on any talks yourself? Did you go to any of the speakers' presentations? No, uh, usually I don't have time. When when I do, my, I, my lecture was at 9 o'clock Friday morning on the 3rd, which is too early to be doing a lecture, I found out. Once I do my lecture, then I'm back at my own table selling my products because, as most of you know, the, the finances in this business are minimal, and whatever you can sell at the table benefits the weekend that you spend doing it. Sure. So I didn't get a chance. I did talk to, to Travis alone. I did talk to Jesse quite a bit. Jesse Marcel indicated that this may be his last hoorah. I don't know if he's fixing to, to quit doing the lectures, but Jesse's not doing real well. He's got leg problems and wearing braces on his legs and stuff. And I don't know if you know, but at 68 years old, he was called up to active duty in Afghanistan and ran something like 30 missions. Yes, he told he us a, when he was on. Yeah, helicopter pilot and doctor, and they quit doing that because they've lost too many doctors. They don't let them do both anymore. Yeah. Now, that man is a true American patriot. He is. Well, he really he is. is. And yeah. If there's anybody in, in the UFO field of, of Roswell that I put a lot of confidence in, it's him and his dad because of the... Bunch the family. Are. Yeah, it does. It does. You, you've been quiet, Frank. Please. <laughs> well, I'm listening. I had a debate a while back with a fellow that, you know, of course, as we all know, uh, one of the... Uh, well, one of the wrenches in the spokes uh, that's come up with some of the skeptical crowd to be polite uh, was Marcel's military record. And I had gotten a debate in a forum not too long ago, and uh, Marcel Sr. was getting uh, trashed. And, and I said, you know, for, for those of us that have uh, actually pulled military records and so forth and so on, it, you know, it's not the end all of information. And, and I'll give you an example. We all know that uh, Marcel's record uh, was pulled many years ago uh, by Bob Todd. And, uh, in fact, uh, he actually uh, apparently got much more than what was uh, legal. According to him, he got the entire file. But now, just to give you an example of how crazy this is, I recently, just as an exercise, did a FOIA on Jesse Marcel Sr.'s military records. And you know what I got? Bumpkiss, nada, nothing. Said it didn't exist. I can't find it. Oh, really? So I, I, I raised this point because there, this this thing, uh, you know, just because you you pull a record, uh, it doesn't mean that you're going to have the entire record. In fact, the old DA twenty forms that they used during the war, oftentimes those were taken via the interview of the individual's record themselves. In other words, somebody would sit down, interview the person, and say, "Well, where were you stationed?" Uh, this year, what you know, what what were your duties, et cetera, et cetera. 
So in, in, in uh, certain instances, the actual uh, individual of the record in question would be the one giving the information. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the people that use that, it's a double-edged sword. Oftentimes people will use uh, various things uh, in Marcel's record uh, to, to try to detract from the statements that he's made. And, yes, certainly certain things can give you pause, uh, but to, to get in and, and, uh, and say that the man was a liar and this, that, and the other, I take offense to that. And I feel, as his son is, that they're both patriots. This, that certainly runs in the family. I have 11 or 12 commendation and recommendation letters for Major Marcel, both before and after the Russell incident. So his, his military career is untarnished. Yeah, I hate to say this, but men start to realize at about 40 that we're not so young anymore. I think it hits us when we start hearing about the importance of prostate health. Well, your prostate is right down there near your bladder. So if it's unhealthy, it can affect your urine flow and even intimacy. So I see my doctor for checkups and I take a supplement called beta prostate. Beta prostate is made with plant sterols that target the prostate. That's really powerful stuff. How powerful? Well, you'd have to take over a hundred saw palmetto capsules to get the same healthy benefits found in one capsule of beta prostate. The choice is easy. Take better care of your body and try beta prostate risk-free for 30 days. You've got nothing to lose. Just call 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. With beta prostate, your satisfaction is guaranteed or you get your money back. Call now. 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Is your IRS tax problem ruining your life? Hi, I'm Ronnie Deutsch. Don't be another IRS victim, and please don't give up hope. Call me today and let's do something about it. If you have tax problems, call Ronnie Lynn Deutsch, a professional tax corporation, at 800-515-4541. That's 800-515-4541 for your free and confidential tax analysis. That's 800-515-4541 for your free tax guide. Call Ronnie Deutsch's law firm and speak with them today. Not available in New York. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey guys, we're talking to Frank Warren and Dennis Balthaser, focusing primarily on Roswell and where we go, if anywhere, from here. And initially it is, of course, the credentials of Jesse Marcel Sr. Now, Part of it, I wonder, though, is if one person gets a substantial amount of records, another person makes the same inquiry and gets nothing. 
Why? What's going on here? Is, is that confused? Well, this is, this is the nature of the beast, and I just use this as an example. I, I have uh, two responses from that recent FOIA. The first one was uh, they don't exist in the sense that we can't find them, and, and generally they give you the 1973 fire excuse for that, right. although that wasn't that at this particular time. And then I got a, about two weeks later, I got a response that says we need more time, and that's the last that I've heard of it uh, at the moment, which was done several months ago. And again, I did this just as an exercise to see what would happen. Uh, the point is, uh, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, people oftentimes, particularly debunkers, will take this and say, well, oh my God, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. Look at the discrepancies in, uh, in his military record in, uh, in contrast to what he's gone on record about. Um, well, if you get down uh, with a magnifying glass and really look into that, much of it is, is explainable. And the source isn't consistent to begin with, as just evidenced by my own FOIA uh, as of late. Uh, so you can't condemn the man uh, because of uh, minor discrepancies uh, in, in his military record, in my view. Yeah, and, and this is often the case. Uh, Corso comes to mind, uh, which mm. I, uh, I was tasked to pull his uh, military files by Stan. And, of course, Stan doesn't think a whole lot of, of Corso uh, in regards to uh, his statements in, pertaining to ufology. But when I received his file, I was shocked. First off, it's the biggest military file I've ever uh, done a FOIA on. Uh, and, and given the background and, and uh, his achievements and accommodations and, and all the accolades, I thought, well, why would this guy lie about anything? Now, that doesn't mean that I, I take in everything that he said in regards to ufology, but it certainly gave me pause because I never gave it another thought before in, in terms of Corso. One of the biggest contentions with him in regards to Stan was his claim of being in the National Security Council. Stan says, well, you know, that's awful weak, and he certainly wasn't in the National Security Council. Well, I took it on myself to look into that, and uh, in my view, uh, with what I, the evidence that I uncovered, he could have said that he was in the National Security Council. Was he one of the founding uh, seven members, uh, if in fact it was seven? You know, the small group when the National Security Council was born? Of course not. By the time he was, uh, when he was in the Operations uh, Coordinating Board, or the OCB, which was uh, under the wing of the National Security Council, the NSC was a big conglomerate uh, during the Eisenhower administration, and uh, he was addressed by uh, Congress as a member of the National Security Council. The FBI uh, uh, entitled him as a member of the National Security Council, and the reason that he could get away with that is because it was such a big conglomerate, and he was, in fact, in the OCB, which was an arm of the National Security Council. Now, again, that doesn't mean that I, I condone everything that Corso has said, but he certainly could get away with, uh, with saying that he was, uh, in a broad sense of the, of the term, uh, with the National Security Council. I mean, if it's good for Congress, it's good enough for me. But it just, you, you know, you can't take these things for granted, and you have to look in. You've got to look at the fine print and, and see what's going on, uh, particularly if it's information coming from the government. Mm -hmm. uh, that one is hinging their argument on. With the government, you can't depend on anything, can you? I mean, even in this day and age, there's confusion with all the advanced systems of information that we have. Maybe that's why it's so easy for the North Koreans to hack the government computers. They're all built by the company that gave the lowest bid or <laughs> lobbied the right senators or congressmen. I don't know. Yeah, that's a scary thought. But that's, that's, they've got a lot of experience, too, with this. 
you know, they've been lying for 60 years, not only about UFOs, but a lot of other things. So they're, they're good at it. One of the other people I got to meet, guys, while I was here at the festival, who I guess escaped from the UFO Museum somehow and came up to the convention center to do an interview on the Jerry Pippen show was David Rudiak, who has done some more information, had some more information on the Ramey memo. And he continues to work on that and, and those words, victims of the wreck, still stand out. And uh, the fact that there was a weather balloon cover story to be sent out later and things like that. So that was an interesting conversation, too. So that's that infamous memo you're talking about where you can almost sort of make out what's written on it, but not quite. Right. Yeah, he has, uh, the way he did it this time, he has uh, certain words in black letters, which are certain or higher confidence words. Then he's got some violet or dark gray letters, and those are difficult to see, partially obscured. Mm -hmm. And a light aqua blue that's totally hidden. He said it's unknown or filled in from context or educational guessing. And there's several words that you cannot make out at all, but there are several words in there. The first line, there's eight lines to the memo, and Fort Worth Army Airfield acknowledges that a disk is next new find west of the cordon. At a location was a wreck near operation at the ranch, and the victims of the wreck you forwarded it to the team at Fort Worth, Texas. Aviators in this, they will ship from A-18th Army Air Force by B-29 or C-47. Wright Air Force assesses airfoil at Roswell. CIC team said this misstate meaning of story and think noon late today next send out PR weather balloon would take the photos used and Sound about the the Raven Cruise. So it's awfully, you know, it's yeah, it's awfully damning. I mean, when you when you look at it in that context, even though it, it's hard to reconstruct absolutely all of the the wording of the message of the memo, it's it's of concern. It seems to indicate that indeed there was some something going on. I mean, I think at this point, and and you know, Dennis and and Frank, I know that uh, you know you both of you gentlemen have put a lot of work in, into the whole Roswell situation. There are a lot of people that feel that this case is sort of a... It's passed into mythology uh, because it was so long ago. And Dennis, as you pointed out, so many of the primary witnesses are gone. But I think everybody can, can certainly agree that, if nothing else, there was a conspiracy and there was a cover-up. It seems like yep. it's, it, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty safe to say that. Well, that's been admitted by the Air yeah. Force, for one. Uh, right. Four times. You know, yeah. yeah they, they, they came out and said, well, guess what? We did lie. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had to lie. We were lying about, uh, we, we were covering up Mogul. So they have admitted lying. You know, we lied about the, our very first public statement, which was, in fact, that we have in our possession a flying disc. We lied about that. So, uh, you know, they're, they're admitting lying. You know, don't believe this lie, uh, but believe this statement. Don't believe this statement, believe this statement. <laughs> well, the last, and then the last statement about the, the, the bodies the, that were recovered, they used the anthropomorphic crash test dummies, which weren't used for six years later. Right. So, you know, we have information to go on based on, on four lies over 62 years. I'll be 68 years old this year. I'm hoping I live long enough for their fifth excuse because I'm sure there's one going to come. <laughs> we better hurry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Frank, I wanted to ask you a question here. A few weeks back in the UFO Chronicles publication that you send online, was there something there about this memory metal associated with Roswell? 
Yes, that was uh, something that Tony Bregalia uh, looked into, and it was called uh, nitinol. Okay, maybe you start from the beginning. Why do we find ourselves concerned with this material? What was it? Well, uh, nitinol uh, has, uh, and of course, Bregalia is the expert on it, and I don't pretend to speak for him, but he's done a lot of research into this. And nitinol has the uh, has many of the properties that we have all heard about in regards to the Roswell material. The notion is uh, that nitinol uh, was actually born by the Roswell material. And Tony has uncovered some things that, at the very least, give us all pause, and it, well, it precipitates further research. Is there a connection to this material, uh, or, or is it just a coincidence? He's taken a lot of flack, you know, on on these particular things, you know. But my stance is, is it needs further research. Let's look into this. Let's uh, let's don't just condemn it, but uh, let's just don't sign off on it either. Uh, this thing. Uh, he, he's pulled some things out that uh, that give me pause, and, and it uh, necessitates further research. Okay, just to define still further, when I say memory metal, or you say it, I think people remember, of course, the first Batman Begins movie where his cape was a memory cloth that could mm. recall its positioning or shape or be put into any shape. So is the memory metal the same thing, something that can just be shaped at will? My understanding of it, and, and I've, I've seen some video of nitinol. I, I saw a, uh, and perhaps you guys have seen it as well, I'm certain our listeners have. There's a, a video on, on uh, YouTube, as a matter of fact, where there's a wire that's crumpled up, and and the gentleman that's in the video, he he takes the wire and he and he puts it in a bowl of hot water. And the wire was originally I forget the wording, but it was it was spelled out. There was a word that it comes back into exactly. It, I mean, it was very impressive uh, to watch this. And of course, now that was that was a wire opposed to a sheet of metal. But but the notion is that you could uh, and and of course the uh, the eyewitness accounts from Roswell were that you could take a piece of the so-called memory metal crumple it up in your hand, let it go, and then it would uh, go back to its original open form. And it, and the other merits, of course, were the strength that couldn't be cut, burned, damaged, etc. You know, it's, it's probably important to point out, when we talk about the Roswell episode and the invariably the Corso stories about reverse engineering come up, I think people should understand that they should really differentiate between the idea of Seeing something, seeing a technology that you're not familiar with and getting inspired to go in a certain direction based on that. And, and that topic was actually very well covered. And this is usually a, a gene thing, but I'll do it here. It was really well covered in Terminator 2, where we, we, we learned sort of, a, you know, they, they put together this mythology of how the advanced technology was created based on the scientist who was looking at the recovered arm and computer chip from the... Uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator character, and they couldn't recreate it, but they, it just sent them, like he says in the movie, it sent us in new directions. When we talk about Roswell, there is this idea that, you know, for example, certainly uh, certain movements like the exopolitical movement will state that the government has retrieved this technology, has reverse engineered it, and successfully recreated it. And I think there are a lot of problems with that statement, and, and we need to get that out of the way. But, but you know, certainly understand that things can be inspired by something, which is a very different kind of a situation than taking an advanced technology and reverse engineering it in its totality, which I think uh, personally think is a lot less likely. 
Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. Business travel is a profitability killer, you know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking with Frank Warren and Dennis Balthaser about Roswell, and we got into the subject again of reverse engineering. Frank, you had a point to make. Well, those are definitive statements, and we can't go there. Uh, you, you have to go where the evidence take you, takes you. Now, does in, in fact what David says? Uh, you know, let's just assume there is there are no question of this thing. Let's assume that an extraterrestrial craft did in fact crash in Roswell. And there's no argument to that. If you just go by supposition, certainly we're going to look into this thing. Certainly, in, in fact, during the Second World War, we had branches of the military that did, in fact, back-engineer craft. That was in place. Absolutely. Um, yes. Human craft. <laughs> yeah, human craft. But So right. it, it's not too out of line uh, in the thinking that that would take place with uh, with an extraterrestrial craft. Can we say without a doubt that, that things, that technology, if you if you want to go to the to the, uh, the the Corso dogma that that he salted uh, corporations with this thing. I, I no, we can't go there. Right. We can't go there definitively. I mean, we can right. make the suggestion as the infamous book does, but we have to. Where's the proof? This is why uh, Bregalia's piece uh, got so much traction because he claims that he has a little bit of proof that he has found an individual that was involved with it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, is that the smoking gun? No. But I think his his work needs uh, further research. It's exciting. And But the other part of it, too, is some of the brightest minds in the world. In fact, I was in a debate with a fellow the other day. Well, my God, uh, you know, if this, in fact, if Roswell did take place, all these bright minds would be involved in it. Well, many bright minds were involved in it. 
Sure. Uh, you know, a Teller was one that was sitting in Los Alamos in 1949 uh, with a half a dozen of other scientists, some of the brightest minds in the country that uh, would later on become Nobel laureates. Mm-hmm. Uh, that did, in fact, happen. If you adhere to what Ruppelt said in, in his book, he, in fact, said that there were groups of scientists uh, across the country that were involved in UFO research. Um, so these things did, in fact, take place, and it's not hard to envision that there would be work done on a physical craft. What makes it tick? How does it work? You know, we had the machinery set up to do that from the war with uh, terrestrial craft. Right. So sure. the idea isn't too far-fetched. Oh, no, not at all, and I, I wasn't trying to suggest that. I just, I, it, it's a suspicion on my part, call it an intuition, that it, even with those mechanisms in place, Getting something that was sufficiently advanced, uh, I don't know that, that even if you had the best minds and all of the money in the world, it, it's questionable whether or not you could have taken a technology sufficiently advanced or sufficiently different and been able to successfully reverse engineer it. Let me jump in here. and, and Please. I've been working this Roswell thing for 12, 15 years with Frank and Schmidt and Stanton and several others, and I've interviewed hundreds of interviews, hundreds of witnesses. And I've had a theory, and I think Frank's familiar with it, maybe you guys are too, about Roswell. I think whatever was recovered 62 years ago, we still don't know what we have. We don't know how it operates, propulsion, guidance system, motive for being here, where it came from, things like that. It's my understanding that military technology advances 10, 15, 20 years per calendar year. We don't use anything in our daily life that the military hasn't already used. So it's my thinking that whatever we recovered, they're trying to figure out what we have to get the military advantage out of it because we don't want our adversaries knowing what we have. Uh Consequently, they're not going to admit that it happened or that we know anything about it. And I think until that happens, till the military gets the technology out of whatever was recovered, I don't think they'll go public with it. Absolutely right. Yeah, Dennis, I don't think I would even try to debate that point. I think you're, you're right. You're dead on the money there. Absolutely. And in fact, certainly just, just talking about computer technology, we'll just talk about computer technology for a moment, moment which is something that Gene and I, you know, that's a, our professional lives, that's what we deal with. Years ago, years ago, there was a, a sort of a distant family member of mine, and I've never told this story, okay? So uh, I'll just throw this out there. And it's, not, it's no, in no way paranormal, but uh, years ago, many years ago, I had a distant family member who was involved in the military tell me about experiments that were going on at the time with something called a holographic memory core. Now, we're not going to take this, techno- this, this show down the technology road right now, but the concept of a holographic memory core and optical computing is something that today is still in no way, not only not mainstream, it's not even well known. Okay, but this distant family member of mine told me that the military, this is this is like I got to tell you, this is like 20 years ago, maybe longer, has said to me, we've done experiments with this stuff. And there's a a real problem with the consistency of the circuitry because of the, the, the issue of what an optical computing device is. And that was like 20 years ago. And so I have to assume, could be an inaccurate assumption on my part, but I have to assume that in those 20 years, the military would have made significant strides with the holographic memory core and optical computing technology. And just for anybody interested in the basis of what that is, we're talking about a computer system in, in which the idea of a processor 
and a separate memory bank, and the bus that connects them being really in many ways the constraining part of the architecture of the technology, that that is a completely archaic principle and that the, the processor and the memory are one and the same, which means instantaneous memory access, and it also means forms of highly parallel processing that really have no equivalent in any consumer technology or any, any even professional <laughs> computing technology today. So clearly, Dennis, what you've said is absolutely accurate. I mean, I totally believe in that. And the military is indeed, certainly in terms of computer technology, stuff that's sitting in labs, they are years and years beyond what the best minds in academia have access to, what the best minds in the commercial industrial world have access to. Yeah, that's absolutely true, sir. I think uh, that's probably, that answers your question, why do we keep researching this? Because, you know, four excuses in 62 years that are not satisfactory, and then the fact that we believe, those of us that still believe in Roswell, think we still haven't been told the truth, and I think the reason I gave is one of the reasons we're not told the truth. But this this goes to other places, too. You know, the, the F-117 was on the drawing board in 1973. We found out about it during the Gulf War. 91. Uh, Area 51 was opened in 55 by the CIA for the U-2. We found out about it through a Russian satellite photo in the 80s, so they're good at keeping secrets. The atomic bomb was right here in Los Alamos, had 50,000 people across the country for 10 years. Yep. They've had a lot of experience in doing this, and I just can't give up on Roswell yet. Uh, some have, but I, I just can't. Well, if Roswell was the real, they'd still be doing the testing. So can we expect that maybe there's a Warehouse 13, to quote the name of a new TV show, where they keep all this strange stuff and where they try to check it out and not just let it sit there? Oh, I think without a doubt that's true. The, well, interestingly enough, on, on that note, and Dennis, you know, you know who I'm talking about, but let me, I digress a little bit. Let me insert this uh, in the sense that the, the other part where the interest uh, remains with Roswell is that we still do get new witnesses. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is is because of various researchers being out there uh, publicly all the time. Right. It's, a, it's slowed down to a trickle, but still to this day, new witnesses have come up. In fact, recently, in regards to uh, Dennis and myself and, and Stan as well, uh, we were contacted by uh, a man who claimed that his father was involved in Roswell, and we're currently investigating him, and he has since brought his sister uh, into the play. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're trying to verify everything that's been laid on the table uh, to the best of their knowledge and so forth and so on, and, and it looks quite intriguing. So, that you know, that's the other part that why Roswell won't die is because there, there are still witnesses that are coming out and, and new information. Uh, well, Walter Hott's statement, uh, which I don't put a lot of credence to given his condition at the end of his life, he put Ramey uh, in Roswell. Now, to the best of our knowledge, that wasn't the case. But but if, in fact, we can find evidence that Ramey was in Roswell, that's big. And we're also working on that. Uh, we're trying to fl find any flight records, any, any verification, anything at all that took uh, Ramey from Carswell uh, to Roswell Army Airfield. Uh, we haven't been successful just yet, but that would be a, that would be a bombshell if, in fact, you know, that was the case. But it, interestingly enough, uh, 
Gene, you mentioned Warehouse 13, and I don't know if anybody saw it, but they've got that new show on the History Channel with That's Impossible, and Nick Pope was on that. And they get into a lot of the uh, this exotic technology, and one of them, were, uh, the, well, the theme of the show was the invisibility cloak. Mm-hmm. And Nick Nick Pope introduced that uh, uh, in regards to the military aspects of it. It was quite interesting. So, and uh, it, <laughs> they're making a lot of advancement in that cloaking. Yeah, uh, well, and across the board. And as Dennis states, uh, it starts with the military. We don't know, you know, the military works on these things. The F-117 is, is a great example of that. Uh, you know, they work on them for years, and be, before uh, the public finds out about it. So you have to wonder, you know, it, it, in fact, it makes you think about the uh, the so-called Aurora, yep. the rumors of it. Uh, when will we hear about that if, in fact, it exists or perhaps it exists in another, on a, you know, by another name? But that, there's a model for that. We know how the military works in those regards. We, we, we watched it, uh, you know, with the Manhattan Project. The, this mm-hmm. fellow that I was debating a while back, he said, well, all these people would know. And I said, I said well, show me the, the model for that. I said, let's go back to Truman uh, when he became president. He was a little ticked off because he didn't know about the Manhattan Project, uh, <laughs> the, the very instrument, the program that was going to put an end to the Second World War, the vice president. Didn't, was not briefed on that. He didn't have a need to know. So my argument to this fellow was, you know, wh- where's the model? Why would all these other people know? Loose lips sink ships. We just got out of the Second World War and we're entering a Cold War. That whole wartime mentality was still going on. People were keeping secrets. Okay, but we're now looking at 60 years later, and I wonder how this would work here. Unless they discovered the key to longevity, you'd think that generation... A, we'll call it Generation A, B, C. Generation A investigated the case. Now the various departments being taken over by a new generation of people. So they have to bring them into a room and say, hey there, you now have the need to know. Let us tell you the secret, and this is the secret you have to keep. And every generation is given the same thing. So with all these generations of commanders or black project people, whatever it is, how do they manage to keep it a secret? The Know Neighbor is one of the hardest jobs in organizing this show and our websites was finding the right host to get everything online. We've used a number of these companies, and there are lots of good ones to choose from, but the very best is One and One Internet. One and One Internet is part of United Online. It's a large European telecom company that's been in business since the 1980s. So you can bet they know what they're doing, and there are millions of individuals and companies out there who depend on One and One Internet to get online and stay online. Right now, One and One Internet is having a big special. From the cheapest email hosting package to the large dual quad-core server that we're using, you can bet that you'll get a full package of the services you really need at a price that's far lower than you might expect. From registering a domain to hosting a full-fledged business site, use the same host we do, One and One Internet. To get the latest special deals, point your browser to theparacast.com slash host. That's theparacast.com slash host for the best value in hosting your personal or business sites. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. 
Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're going to find out, at least get some suggestions, from Dennis Balfazer and Frank Warren. Gentlemen, who wants to take that first? I'll interject this thought, and Dennis has talked about this before. I think the bigger question is, is uh, who who gets put on the list of need to know? Is it the temporary occupant of the White House? Is it the guy that's going to sit at the helm for four years, maybe eight? Does no. he get to, does he fall under that category? Uh, you can go back to, uh, Project Shamrock, which was the, the tapping of all the, uh, uh, back then of all the cable wires, uh, not cable, uh, wires in terms of communiques uh, going, uh, offshore. These were not only, uh, they were, they were recorded and no sitting president knew about it up until Nixon. For those that have read the Puzzle Palace and the, the work of Bamford. So here you had these projects going on that were literally slaughtering the rights of American citizens, going against the written Constitution, and no sitting president was aware of it while it was going on, although various heads of corporations were were uh, involved in this particular effort, which was clearly illegal. Many times in lectures and writing editorials, I'll mention something to the fact that the President of the United States is not a, totally aware of what's going on with UFOs and many other things. My reasoning is that he's a temporary employee. He's there eight years and then he's gone and he can't be trusted. I had the chance to meet Edgar Mitchell three times, a sick man on the moon, astronaut, who's from Roswell, by the way. And I wanted to talk to him about Roswell because I knew he knew something about it. And he admitted to me that Roswell happened, but wouldn't give me any details. He said he knew enough people and heard enough things that he's convinced that Roswell did happen. He also told me that we have two governments. We have an elected government and a black government. And I'm guessing that the black government is probably similar to what's been referred to in the 40s as the Majestic 12 group, which would no longer exist if it ever existed. But today there could well be a group such as that comprised of very few people who pretty much call the shots for this country. And I think people like George Bush Sr. and Henry Kissinger would be two members of that. Bush, because he was head of the CIA before he went to become president, he might have some knowledge of ufology. Uh, Kissinger, just because of his involvement in world, world affairs over the years. I believe there are two governments, and I think that, I don't know, I asked Mitchell, I said, who did they answer to? He said, they don't. I said, they have to answer to somebody. He said, no. They don't answer to anybody, so I'm of the impression that somebody's pulling strings and, and that we got an elected government that's just, just a cover for, for everything else. Well, I, you know, I'll tell you, Dennis and Frank and Gene, you can certainly make that argument in the light of a totally unrelated field, the financial reality right. of, our, of our country and, you know, looking at, and I know people don't like it on the Paracast when we veer off into political topics, but sadly we cannot divorce them from this conversation, we look at what happened with the 
TARP money distribution and the way that the Federal Reserve played into that whole situation last year, there are specifics of that story that, to my mind, and I think to many people who are looking at that from an institutional analysis point of view, that whole situation, there were shenanigans going on with, with public funds, public money, that were not being explained in any kind of coherent way to the Congress. There, there, are, there were irregularities about that that continue to, to poke their heads up in that no one really has a proper accounting for what happened to that money. Uh, there's a, and, and if people are interested in this topic, they can go and do a little, just a little bit of research. Not, it doesn't take much to figure out that you know, you've got the Federal Reserve pointing their fingers over, over at the banks. You've got the bank, banks pointing their fingers at the government. And meanwhile, you know, people are still under the belief that the Federal Reserve is a federal organization, and they're not. So when you start to look at all of that from a, a truly inquisitive point of view and, you know, put aside all the people get into sort of extreme expressions of, of conspiracy theories. But if you look at just, you know, to take away the conspiracy theory aspect of it and make it objective institutional analysis, you start to find discrepancies that would clearly, to me at least, indicate that there might even be more than two governments. You know, you talk about the elected government and the black government. I, I wish it were that simple. I think there's something a little more, even more com complicated than that going on. And, and in all of this, there are tremendous amounts of money that vanish into black holes that no one knows right. where this money has gone. National um, security, research, and development are two of the terms they use, and there's absolutely no accountability for anything. That's right. That's right. That harkens back to uh, Jesse Marcel uh, Jr.'s uh, meeting uh, in Washington, yeah. uh, uh, where he went several stories underground, and, and the guy uh, talks to him about Roswell, and, and he's asking Jesse questions, and and I think he turns it around. I'm ad living, but he turns it around and says, "Well, don't you know?" And he says, "Well, I'm I'm involved on the money end of it. You know, we're we're trying to find where." Uh, what black hole this money's going into, <laughs> but he in in essence confirms that in fact Roswell did did take place, but uh, but his end of it is chasing uh, the money down. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was quite interesting. And you know, just to bring this back to Jesse Marcel Jr., I've seen some things on the web, and I've seen some people attempt to attack Marcel's memory of what happened that night that his father brought the stuff home. I've seen this, and I have to tell you, gentlemen, this has made me extremely angry because knowing from my own personal experiences in my life, the incredible weight and intensity of going through something like that, where you're, you're witness to something extraordinary, the idea that an 11-year-old Jesse Marcel Jr. is going to somehow misinterpret what's happening in his kitchen in the middle of the night as, dad, as his dad walks in with this stuff and says, look at this, take a look at this that he's going to somehow misinterpret that or, or fudge that memory, I think is so disingenuous. I think it's absolutely, it's, it's, it's not only disrespectful, but it, it really is, it's annoying to me on a, on, a, on a core level because I know that at an earlier age than that, I saw things and I went through things that remain in my memory as such distinctly clear and intense memories. It's because when you, when you go through something like that, it's not like... And, and I understand the idea of how memory changes over time and how there is a thing called selective memory and all of the, the psychological components that go into playing with our perception of the world. But when people will call Jesse Marcel Jr.'s memories about that night into question and say that somehow 
he was misinterpreting it or even go to so far as to try to suggest that he was making it up. In talking to Jesse Marcel Jr., we've had him on the show a couple of times. I think that man's word is gold. I really do. Well, you know what makes it so interesting, this whole thing? This kind of testimony would get somebody sent to the gas chamber, you know? Yep. The same person at 11 years old, he saw this person kill that person. Mm-hmm. And he identifies him in court or from a picture. Says, yes, I remember that. And it could be 50 years ago because there's no statute of limitations for murder. That person can be convicted on the weight of that evidence. But I saw and, some and that weird evidence kind of... carries weight. It carries weight in everything but ufology. Yeah. Exactly. All of a sudden, it's not good enough. Yeah. yeah. And it's along those same lines. It's uh, that statement in, in regards to his memory is as ludicrous as the Air Force's uh, fourth excuse about six foot tall anthropomorphic dummies uh, <laughs> being mistaken for four foot little guys from uh, possibly another planet six years after the fact. <laughs> you know, historically, this is another thing, and, and this was brought up. We've proven this with the with the balloon hope that took place earlier this year. We won't mention Bill Burns on this one. Um, but if Who? you go I never back, heard of that name before. If you if you go back and and look at the anecdotes from the the witnesses, and there is a uh, historic model on this. Witnesses are generally very accurate in terms of their descriptions of what they saw. This is not to say that their interpretations are. If you go back, and, and I've got a large database of, of old newspaper files from, from meteors and bolides and volcanoes going off over the years and so forth and so on, if you dissect those descriptions and the anecdotes, they're fairly accurate as to what, what, what they actually saw. The same case, uh, again, coming to current times earlier in the year when they did the balloon in the flare hoax, if you look at all the anecdotes, they are very descriptive in terms of what they saw. You know, flickering light floating across the sky, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Now, some people thought that their interpretation of what they saw was different from their description. So you you have to separate the wheat from the chaff. You have to separate people's interpretations. Same with uh, some of these uh, volcanic episodes in the 1800s. A lot of people thought it was the end of the world. But if you look at what they were describing, the red sky and and so forth and so on, uh, it was very accurate in regards to how they described it, opposed to the interpretation. Looking at this a little bit further, let's deal again with the off-stated rumor also that Roswell may have been some kind of secret weapons test of some sort, which is why, of course, they'd be in a hurry to grab the wreckage away because we didn't want people to know about it. How's that stand up? Dennis, you want to take that one? Well, I don't think it does. When you look at aircraft that have been developed over the last 30, 40 years, the A-10, A-12, B-1, the B-2, you know, we have equipment now that has been taken out of service. The F-117 at Holloman, just 100 miles from here, has been mothballed. They brought in the Raptor 22, F-22, so they really had something better. And again, going back to military technology, I, I don't think that something 60 years ago would still be kept secret, regardless of what it was. And the witness testimony doesn't verify that it was anything of ours, the Russians, Germans, or Japanese. The rancher knew what weather balloons were. He recovered them. He had a re- there was a reward. They had a tag on them, and he'd take them in and get ten bucks or fifteen dollars, which is a lot of money back in '47. He knew what they were. What he recovered was something he had never seen. The sheriff didn't know what it was, and then the military apparently 
didn't know what it was, or if they did know what it was, decided they better have it covered up pretty quickly, which they did. Well, and the other end of it, too, is remember, we're talking about the only atomic uh, Air Force base in the world. Right. There, there would have been a, a great dereliction of duty if the left hand was launching some exotic uh, top-secret uh, weapons without notifying the base. Moreover, nobody was looking for this. So had that been a top-secret device of some sort, they would have been tracking it. They certainly would have beaten Marcel there. I, I mean, it stands to reason. And, and the, Blanchard, the base, so forth and so on, they would have been, been made aware of that, one would think. They Marcel was the top intelligence officer in, in, the, in the world at the time and went on to, to be, get promoted and be part of the Strategic Air Command, continue to do intelligence work. Colonel Blanchard went on to become a four-star general of the Pentagon, assistant joint chiefs of staff, considered four joint chiefs of staff. These were sharp people. They were the best we had. And had anything secret to have been going on, Marcel, for sure, as the intelligence officer, would have had some knowledge of it. That doesn't fly. There's, there's no indication that that ever happened. About Marcel, is it possible that he knew things that he took to the grave with him because of national security? I don't think so anymore because of the interviews he had with Linda Corley before he passed away where he drew on a piece of paper and signed the paper five symbols that he remembered what they looked like on the I-beam. The fact that his son, an 11-year-old boy, had the information, handled the material, kept it quiet for all his years because his daddy told him it was a non-event, we won't talk about it. And he didn't. Thankfully, Jesse Jr. decided years later to go public and write the book, which was extremely needed and it's an excellent book for history on his daddy and his family and what they went through. And I think you're, it's in for a penny, in for a pound. I think if there were any other things that he certainly would have told his son in a small group of people. I mean, There, there is the, the contention that possibly he knew about bodies or had seen bodies personally himself and they're expanding upon that. And again, I, I, I think with the ridicule that, or, or the spotlight that you put on yourself for making the statements that he did, you're in for a penny and for a pound. There certainly would have been people uh, that would have known everything, as Dennis and I believe, which is the fact. Uh, yeah. Certainly Jesse Jr. knows everything, and I, I think everything's on the table in regards to Marcel. Yeah, I do too. A possibility that other witnesses out there do know the next step or next degree of information, or are they obeying the edicts till their dying day? Well, when I find a new witness, I'll call them and, and ask them what they know about Roswell, and usually the response I get is I wasn't there. I don't know anything about it. I happen to have a copy of the 1947 Roswell Airfield yearbook, which Frank does too. That has pictures like a high school yearbook of each member that was stationed here, the squadron they were in, the rank. And I'll let them know I'm looking at your picture in the Roswell Airfield yearbook, and then they'll say, yeah, I was there, but I'm not going to talk about it. And many times I can't go any further than that because I, I don't pressure witnesses. I don't believe that that's a good policy to do, but I will pursue it and try to get information if they're willing to give it, and many times they're not. Well, and this also goes back to a different time in a different genre where the, where the morals were completely different. When somebody was told to, to shut up back in those days, you know, we're, we're talking about a bunch of patriots. We're, we're, we're talking mm -hmm. about people that were true blue, that believed their government was true blue, and back then you did what you were told. It was a completely different flavor. Uh, as it is today. And, and many of these people, uh, well, in, in fact, Hap, when he first made uh, his statement in regards to flying the bodies back, he said that he saw it in the paper. He, he didn't even tell his wife about this. When it went public, when it, when it broke in 78, he thought, well, it's become public. I, I suppose I can talk about it now. 
and certainly many witnesses that came forward probably felt that way after this thing started to get legs back in the late 70s and early 80s. Guys, we're going to break for our alley break in a moment, but I want our listeners to know where to get a hold of you if they want more information. Dennis? Truthseeker, www.truthseeker at Roswell. It's all one word. Truthseeker at Roswell.com, and certainly we're trying to do that today. Frank, where do they get a hold of you, and what do you have for them to check out? Well, of course, we're at the UFO Chronicles. The site is updated uh, daily in regards to any sightings that happen or any UFO minutiae that takes place anywhere in the world. In essence, it's kind of a one-stop shop for uh, UFO information. And uh, we also have a cast of writers that contribute to the site quite often, and uh, we're expanding on that. And, by the way, we are going to join uh, you folks in uh, in the podcast fear, hopefully, here in the next month. Ah. We're going to lend our voice. Uh, Coming up in the world. The right. You're jumping into the fray. Yes, uh, okay. along with the rest of the Calvinists. <laughs> I understand there's a wide wide berth around us because of the Calvinist movement is not working so well. You know, I think we own it right now, according to yeah. some people. We have Frank Warren. We have Dennis Balthaser coming up again on part two of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We are back with part two of our special session with Frank Warren and with Dennis Balthaser, and we go back and forth as to whose name gets first because they're both just really great, knowledgeable people. Now, Dennis, you were telling us between parts one and two that not everything you investigate is something that you could say is, well, thoroughly authentic. Occasionally you run into the red herring or the, or the fake. So can you tell us about maybe something you ran into that you finally got some results on, Dennis? Yeah, and it's it's a good fortunate thing that we have Frank Warren on with us because he was a big part of this. Back in 1997, I went to Oklahoma. I received a phone call from a gentleman who said his dad was stationed at Roswell, was a military policeman, had a piece of the metal and wanted to get rid of it. And I made arrangements to go over and meet the guy and get him on tape and get the metal and have it tested. As it turned out, when I got there, I, the only phone number I had, I couldn't get an answer. I kept calling, and later on, a hotel, by 3.30, the phone rang. The woman said, meet him at Denny's restaurant. I went in, and man and woman came in Denny's restaurant, and uh, he said, are you Dennis? I said, yes. He said, the gentleman you plan on meeting will not be here. I asked him, who are you? And he said, we're special agents of the United States Air Force Office of Special Investigation. I said, how did you know I was coming over here? And he said, we knew Monday you'd be here Friday. So I asked if my phone tapped, and he smiled and said, you know how we do business. I spent three and a half hours with him. We talked about the metal. We talked about Roswell. He had a map. We looked at different crash sites, scenarios. We talked about Area 51, the biblical relationship with UFOs, just a whole lot of things for three and a half hours. Never got to meet the man I went to see. Never saw the metal. I came back. I was paranoid for about five days, put tape on the hood of my truck and fender like the old police trick. Lost 17 pounds in three months and didn't know who I was dealing with or what their motive was. And kept it to myself for a little period of time and talked to Stan Friedman. He suggested I go public. And I put everything in a lecture form and went public and felt a lot better afterwards knowing that the information was out there or something happened to me. I was scared, to put it mildly. And then Frank Warren got involved and uh, helped with the research, trying to locate these people, because my intent really 
was to file a lawsuit against them if, in fact, it was a hoax or a scam because they were impersonating federal agents, which I thought was pretty serious. So, long story short, we worked this 12 years off and on, and Frank did a, an awful lot of legwork on this and come up with a response from the guy's ex-wife who admitted that he had done these things before as a scam or a hoax to different people. And, of course, now the statute of limitations has run out, and I can't really do anything about it other than chalk it up to experience. But I think this is a good example of teamwork and you know, people working together, researchers working together on a serious subject, and maybe not getting the results they hope for, but getting results that can put a, a finalization to a, an incident or to an event. And I think I have it on my website, and I added this last part to it because I think it's important for researchers to be able to to work together and that's one big problem we have today in the ego of a lot of researchers that we can't work together and and I think with Frank and I it's it's an exceptionally good relationship that we have the way we do our research because we have the same motive. Let me but, ask uh, you guys here now one of the things we've talked about occasionally on the show is government disinformation, not just wanting to keep things hidden, but also wanting to, shall we say, muddy the waters. Have you run across any of that in your investigations into Roswell, either of you? Oh, well, this, this particular case, yeah, I, sitting there for three and a half hours, a man had done some homework, there's no doubt about it. He had information that I could verify based on years of research I had done myself. But he also put stuff on me that I had never heard before, and I've heard through other people, through other researchers and intelligence people, that they will suck you in with good information and then filter the other stuff in, and before you know it, you're getting both information and disinformation. And we entertained that possibility early on. You know, the, yeah. the interception, as we call it, uh, although uh, Dennis is condensing it, it, is very, very complicated. And both of us were very nervous uh, early on in this thing because we didn't know what we were getting into. And everything was open early on until we could come to a conclusion. Uh, and, of course, to go back to, to what Dennis said in, in regards to being public, one thing that he omitted and why Stan suggested that was to be safe. To, going public was uh, putting the spotlight on this thing, and it was done as a defensive move. And, and I can't highlight enough. I think the work that was done, regardless of the end result, is what's, what's important. Dennis at one point was thinking, well, we, now that we've concluded that this was a hoax, I'll just pull the speech. I, I won't do the interception anymore. I won't talk about it. And I said, well, why? Just stop. What are you talking about? Everything that happened, everything, uh, how, how you recount the events that took place, took place. I, I said, not only should you talk about it, I think you should talk about it more. This is what goes on in ufology. It's a fact of life. Uh, this did happen just as you did it, uh, as you say it did, and now we have a conclusion. And I think it's very, very important. And it is. It's, uh, you know, the end result's just good work on our part, good teamwork. And this is what researchers do. So I, you know, yeah, let's talk about it. This is important stuff. Here's the thing. In the years of then seeing that these, these kinds of shenanigans go on, and there's so many different players that get involved in these shenanigans. You know, some of the names are very familiar to people, like Doty and Collins and all these other these characters. What do you guys think about the motivation behind the reality of that? Is it just to keep everybody in a place where 
the curtain of laughter surrounding the UFO topic will will never descend. And will, will are we always going to be sort of trapped in this situation where any amount of credible information is just washed over by doubt and by disinformation? Is this going to be? Do you think there's any way to break the cycle? You know, I don't know that there is a way to break the cycle. I, I oftentimes envision somebody back in the late '60s in regards to the powers that be and somebody saying you know we're just we're beating our heads up against the wall here what we need to do is get out of the ufo business altogether we're lending credence to this just by being involved in it and if in fact that was if, if that was the idea born by one individual mm-hmm. boy he gets a big attaboy because look what's happened ever since. I mean, nobody has to do anything. And, and this is one of the things in terms of, uh, say, Leslie Kane's work or, uh, or, or getting a government body to investigate UFOs again. If that happens, one of the things that we'll get at the very least, at least we'll have mainstream science say, well, you know, the government's doing an investigation. And I guess I can, you know, tiptoe over the line, and, and which was the case back in the Blue Book days. But I often wonder, did, did one person just say, you know, look, this is how we can uh, remedy this thing. Let's get out of the UFO business. Let's let these guys uh, fight amongst themselves. We'll salt in a little disinformation from time to time, along with a little information, and see what happens. And look what happens. I mean, it's a mess. <laughs> Another problem is, is Roswell, for instance, there's over 2,000 websites on the Roswell incident. Mm-hmm. And... Ninety percent of those, the people have never been to Roswell, never interviewed a witness, don't know where the crash sites are. It's second, third, and fourth-hand research. I spend an awful lot of time putting out files, and the Internet is great in some senses, but it's also a, a handicap for a serious researcher sometimes because of all the garbage that's out there. And this is a major problem. And some of these people that are in our field I refer to as woo-woos because they have no credibility to begin with. And, you know, I come from an civil engineering background, which gives me some credibility, I think, and I'm brutally honest, and those have served me well in doing this research. But the ego problem I mentioned earlier, there's so much ego in some of this stuff, and I don't know, people like Shermer and and some of the people that get a lot of airtime on television, I don't know what their motive is. I really don't. And it bothers me that they continually come up with the same excuses. They never come up with new information. At least serious researchers like Frank and Stanton and myself once in a while will come up with a new witness or something. You know, I have a theory about that. Like when people go on Larry King and you have people like James Fox talking about his documentary work or you have people like Stanton going on there or Robert Hastings going on there and then invariably they'll bring out the Magaha or the Shermer or the Bill Nye. Mm -hmm. And I was explaining to somebody the other day that that it's my belief that the reason they do that is it's not to, to present a fair and balanced set of views. That's not what it's about at all. Television is about entertainment and storytelling. And in storytelling, what you have to do is you have to set up conflict. It, it, conflict makes for an interesting story. So you, when you, you bring a Shermer on who makes a statement like the one that I keep harping on, which he said, I think he said this when Stan was on, that airline pilots and military pilots are no more credible as yeah. visual witnesses than Joe Sixpack. I mean, I hear something like that, and I think, are, are you high? Are you ridiculous? I mean, they better be better. They better know what they're doing visually because, my God, man, they're behind the yoke of an airplane. I, mm-hmm. I, 
I want them. Right. They, they, you know, that, that. So, but again, the whole reason that this happens is that then it creates a very, very strained uh, sort of a conflict, and conflict makes for you know, good television. There are people who accuse the Paracast of bringing people on to tear them down because we're not presenting our real personalities on the show. Gene and I are coming on here, and we are assuming the personalities of bullies to create conflict because that somehow gets us off. <laughs> well, you give, you give the guests... Both of you give, and every time I've been on your show, you give the guests the opportunity to share their research or share their thoughts, and then you come up with some good responses to them sometimes. Now, I have a major problem with TV documentaries. I've had some bad experiences, and all the, the documentaries I've done, I could probably list five that I was pleased with. Mm -hmm. A good example was the National Geographic several years ago where I filmed for six hours here in, in the Roswell area, used my vehicle to go all over southeast New Mexico, no thank you, you know anything, and Stanton interviewed for a long time with them, and when the show aired, the last thing the announcer said was that Roswell was a myth. Mm. Well, Stanton and I both went ballistic and wrote articles about the National Geographic show and our disappointment with it, but I am convinced, very convinced, that the documentaries that you see on television are for two reasons, profit and ratings. They have nothing to do with factual information. Correct. But I think you're exactly right about that, Dennis. And and people need to understand that when they're seeing things on television, yeah. that that is within a very specific business framework that dictates certain things. And, you know, not that, and I know we'll catch hell for this, Gene, but it has to be brought up here. I think a lot of the issues that people have with the UFO Hunters show is that it appears to many of us that a lot of what goes on there is contrived. And I've brought up specifically on our forums this one episode where Burns and this guy Pat Uskert were interviewing this this young fellow who had had some memories of things, and and Burns says to him on camera, "Well, that you're a hybrid." Yeah, and then Uskert. Then you see this shot later on of Uskert outside saying, "Bill, what the hell did you say to him? Why did you say that to him?" And I thought to myself, either this is Uskert genuinely reaming Burns out for doing for saying something totally inappropriate and totally ridiculous, or the whole thing was contrived and it was all set up ahead of time and it was all basically just an act. And at that point, if you look at that, then you say, well, wait a minute, if that part's an act, then what else is contrived here? The fact that it's a written series. Also, you know, it makes you say, well, now, wait a minute. And Gina and I have talked about this, where people need to understand that so much of reality TV, A... You're only seeing the final edit of was that what was actually going on. You're seeing an edited version of reality. And B, because what you said, Dennis, is exactly correct, stuff that's on television is there for profit and for ratings. And that's what motivates that. Not good research, not good uh, science. That's not what's going on there. It's, it's not even edutainment, it's entertainment. And people really well, need to I've realize done, that. I've done UFO hunters with Bill a couple of times, and the last time when they were in town and, and wanted to interview me, he said some things that he wanted to talk about, and I said, no, we're not talking about that. I will not mention that. And he said, well, I need to get that on the show. I said, well, you're going to have to find someone else because I'm not going to talk about it. And I've done an MTV where I stopped the camera. I said, that's it. I'm walking off, and I didn't have any more to do with them because 
you got to set perimeters for these people, otherwise they're going to take this stuff and take it back and edit it, and you're going to come out totally different than what the interview was. Is your IRS tax problem ruining your life? Hi, I'm Ronnie Deutsch. Don't be another IRS victim, and please don't give up hope. Call me today and let's do something about it. If you have tax problems, call Ronnie Lynn Deutsch, a professional tax corporation, at 800-515-4541. That's 800-515-4541 for your free and confidential tax analysis. That's 800-515-4541 for your free tax guide. Call Ronnie Deutsch's law firm and speak with them today. Not available in New York. Yeah, I hate to say this, but men start to realize at about 40 that we're not so young anymore. I think it hits us when we start hearing about the importance of prostate health. Well, your prostate is right down there near your bladder. So if it's unhealthy, it can affect your urine flow and even intimacy. So I see my doctor for checkups and I take a supplement called beta prostate. Beta prostate is made with plant sterols that target the prostate. That's really powerful stuff. How powerful? Well, you'd have to take over a hundred saw palmetto capsules to get the same healthy benefits found in one capsule of beta prostate. The choice is easy. Take better care of your body and try beta prostate risk-free for 30 days. You've got nothing to lose. Just call 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. With beta prostate, your satisfaction is guaranteed or you get your money back. Call now. 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Gedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We have Frank Warren <laughs> and Dennis Balthaser, and now the rest of the story. <laughs> it's no big deal. You organ music. <laughs> we, uh... David, please, the organ music. Oh, forget it. Bad joke. It was during the during the 50th anniversary when all the media was here, and they got permission to go out to the, the hangar in the airport. In fact, got permission to go out in one of the aprons at the runway, and that's where we were going to do the interviewing. And he got to talking about the bodies and about started to make fun of everything. And I told him, I said, because I knew what kind of show he did. He, he put people in, in a bad position and tried to make fun out of it, and, and I wasn't going there. And we were walking down the apron of the runway, and he started in, and I said, that's it. And I told him, I said, you can stop the camera. And I walked off and went in my truck and went home. And they never aired one minute of me on that show, which was good. My personal thing on the UFO hunters, anybody that follows the UFO Chronicles or myself is completely aware that I'm no fan of the show. Uh, (laughs) I did see a little hope in the beginning of the second season, and and that went away almost immediately. And on the same uh, token, I was asked to be on the show and decline. Just not my cup of tea. I don't. Uh, you know, the argument is, well, it may not be the best show, but it's the only show we have, and it's better than nothing. Well, I disagree with that. There are producers out there right now that are working on uh, good documentaries uh, that have track records uh, mm-hmm. that I'd like to see get out there. If if UFO Hunters doesn't come back for a fourth season, it's not going to hurt my feelings at all. I would rather see 
uh, a documentary style show opposed to uh, the format that they have in the entertainment uh, thing that's going on now. And you know, I was in communication with the producers uh, before the first show aired, and I was very excited, and, and, and I was behind it. And with the premiere of the first show, I, I just, <laughs> I was just disgusted with it, and have remained so for the most part. Uh, it's the reality show motif. It's just gotten yeah, really it's tired. Just, yeah, it's mm. not. It, it, ufology has enough problems. Uh, we don't need to to do this thing. It, it, it does not help. It hurts. Well, I, I'll go one step further. They had actually contacted me. I've been contacted uh, by Bill to ask if I could speak to John Greenwald Jr. Who's one of their producers and has the Black Vault uh, website, which a lot of people like. It's a good website. And um, John called me. I had a talk with him, and he wanted me to look at some footage that supposedly had been shot. I think I think this relates to the uh, Dulce New Mexico thing that they did. I don't know because I watched a chunk of the first season of the show, watched very little of the second season, saw none of the third season. And in fact, when I heard that they had had John Lear on twice, I was like just just very upset and and i and i actually gave burns some hell about that in email but uh greenwell had asked me to look at this footage supposedly shot of these uh canisters with these alien bodies in them and and so forth he wanted to know what i thought about the 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 veracity of this footage and i took a look at it you know this low res youtube thing and i said to him well there's no way this was shot with some secret camera because it's obviously a camera moving on a track there's no bounce to the camera this was a set-up shot, and I pointed out a number of other issues about the shot, and uh, I said to him, there's, this, there's no way that this was something shot covertly. This is footage that was shot. I don't know what it was shot for, but this is all just a, just a bunch of hooey. And he said, you know, are you sure about that? And I said, well, yeah. Well, we're, gonna, we're thinking about making an episode around it. And I said, well, don't, because this is nonsense. If you try to put this forward as real stuff, Anybody who's ever worked in, in the movie business, certainly anybody who's ever worked in the visual effects business, uh, will tell you in two seconds that this is hoax stuff. This is fabricated. This is certainly not what it's being represented as. And, of course, I said to him, and by the way, if you try to look into the provenance of this, because, you know, when you, when you see footage, any kind of footage, the first thing you have to ask is, where did this come from? And what's the backstory to this? Is there more than one person involved in the sourcing of this? And at that point, Greenwald sort of just got cold to what I was saying and said, oh, you know, thanks for your input. Now, I don't know if they ever used that stuff. I don't know. And I know that they did some episode on the Dolce New Mexico thing. That's what I heard about. Don't know if they used this footage. But I, I kind of got the feeling that if I said to him, oh, yeah, this is great stuff, you know, something would have happened with it. And I think that's kind of what they were fishing for. They wanted I, don't, to... I don't think they used that, and, and John right. did, in fact, produce that episode, and I don't recall seeing that in there, but good, again, good. I don't pay a whole lot of attention to the UFO hunters, but I did watch that episode. Because was John it about Dulce? Yes. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it was. They, they did air that, and the Hickory Apache, the Native Americans at Dulce, were very unhappy with it. Nario Hayakawa had done some research on uh, a lot of research on Area 51, but also had been to Dulce a couple times and interested in Dulce and the rumors. And this past March, he set up a conference at Dulce and invited me because of my research into underground bases and tunnels. We were anticipating 20 people maybe would show up. As it turned out, we had 130 and had to move the location of the conference from the uh, 
Hickory Apache Best Western, the only hotel in town, to a room adjacent to the grocery store to accommodate the people. And the impression that I got about Dulce was that if anything is going on there, it may be a diversionary site for another location. And they had several of the local Hickory Apache talked about experiences they had with lights in the sky, with bodies or beings that they had seen. I got the impression that the Native Americans, if they see something, they take it personally and do not want to share it. The interesting thing that happened at that conference, which was set up to start at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, was everyone in the hotel at five minutes to six that morning was woken up by the sound of a helicopter hovering over the hotel. Went outside and what we saw was a black unmarked helicopter very low over the hotel. It was my impression that he was probably checking license plates to see who was attending the conference. <sighs> the Hickoria had no idea who the helicopter belonged to, where it came from, or what their motive was, but it did make for an interesting conference. <laughs> Fascinating. You know, this is where things just keep keep deepening. And so you guys have both been looking into this for, for so long. Here's a, a meta question for you. How do you separate signal from noise? How do you do it? I mean, well, this is the thing. And this has sort of become, in many ways, the tagline of this show, separating the signal from the noise. So here, both of you gentlemen, you spent so many years of this, right? That's the How hardest you- thing we have to do. And, and it's frustrating at times when I want to... Just throw in the towel and say, well, Frank can verify this. I've told him several times, I've had it, I'm quitting, I'm going fishing. <laughs> but then I'll get a, a email from a kid that wants to do a report for school, and I'll help him do the research, and I'm back into it again. But yeah. it's really frustrating because, you know, we've been lied to so long. My civil engineering background was a piece of cake compared to this. And it's really tough to get factual information and doing this type of research, you have to have validity and confirmation because there's too many people waiting to, to pounce on you if you don't have that, even if you do have that in some cases. And there is a methodology, of course, and, and particularly if, it, if we're dealing with an anecdotal situation, then the very first thing is we have to verify who we're talking to. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and, it, you know, and again, once you've gone through all these steps, then you have to sit back and say, okay, well, we've, we've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. What are we left with? Oftentimes, it's just an anecdote, and then an anecdote by itself so that you can you can put that at whatever level of strength in regards to evidence that you'd like, but an anecdote at the end of the day is, is just an anecdote sure. uh, without any other supporting evidence. The same thing can be said for a video or a picture, and I'm sure David Absolutely. will back me up on this. A video by itself at the end of the day or a, or a picture is just that without any supporting evidence. Uh, Stephenville is, is a very uh, case, uh, good case to uh, use an example. That started out as an, uh, a massive eyewitness uh, accounts of uh, unidentified flying object and or objects, and we now have uh, supporting uh, radar evidence with that. That just jumped it up leaps and bounds in that regard. There are also, uh, I've seen uh, cell phone images, etc. So there's more evidence than the initial anecdotal evidence that came to be, and that, that strengthens the case. But, uh, you know, there is a methodology. You have to call out the evidence, then you have to look at the evidence, and then you, you have, the, you know, the, the merit is what the evidence is at the end of the day. Uh, I think the interception, was, the interception was a good example of that because when that happened, that to me was a real incident that I needed to follow up on. That was information that, if it was true, would open up a whole lot of doors and, and answer a lot of questions. 
So I approached it with the intent and belief that, that I was dealing with real people. And I believed that for a long period of time. And then the As final result, of course, the final result was 12 years later, I finally went public and admitted it was a hoax to put a closure to it. Mm-hmm. And that's right. following the evidence. Regardless yep. of anything else, and this is what happens when you get in these debates with debunkers or, and or skeptics, uh, and I'll say debunkers, quite frankly, that the best skeptics I've seen are actually ufologists, you know, in terms of looking at evidence. But, you you know, you can, if you take the egos and, and attitudes and so forth out of it and any bias, uh, and, and if, you, you, if you just follow the evidence, the evidence will speak for itself on its own merits. Walter Hutt comes to mind with uh, with the with the so-called affidavit, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and not to take anything from Walter Hutt, uh, he was a, a patriot. I have the utmost respect for him, but he was a getting he was getting a little senile uh, as he got older, and he made many many statements that contradicted himself. So if you if you take the uh, uh, the personalities out of it and just look at that specific evidence, you, you have to discount the evidence because he's contradicted himself so many times, regardless mm-hmm. of what. You know, we want to believe or feel or or whatever. Now that doesn't take away from the man, in my view. Uh, I don't. I'm not criticizing the man at all. I'm just strictly looking at the anecdotal evidence and what he said over a, a long period of time. And unfortunately, you, you know, you, at the end of the day, you have to. You can't put credence into the evidence, regardless of how much we'd like to. The Unknown Neighbor is one of the hardest jobs in organizing this show and our websites was finding the right host to get everything online. We've used a number of these companies, and there are lots of good ones to choose from, but the very best is One and One Internet. One and One Internet is part of United Online. It's a large European telecom company that's been in business since the 1980s. So you can bet they know what they're doing, and there are millions of individuals and companies out there who depend on One and One Internet to get online and stay online. Right now, One and One Internet is having a big special. From the cheapest email hosting package to the large dual quad-core server that we're using, you can bet that you'll get a full package of the services you really need at a price that's far lower than you might expect. From registering a domain to hosting a full-fledged business site, use the same host we do, One and One Internet. To get the latest special deals, point your browser to theparacast.com slash host. That's theparacast.com slash host for the best value in hosting your personal or business sites. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. 
What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Dennis Balthaser, Frank Warren, joining us for a while yet on the PowerCast. The question remains, what doors are left to be opened on Roswell that we can actually open at this point? Before we even go to that topic, Gene, I think it's important to, to underscore this issue of you know the anecdotal evidence and, and what it really means. Uh, in March of this year, we did a, an episode with Robert Hastings and finally had Robert Salas on the show, but we had two new witnesses, Bruce Fenstermacher and Patrick McDonough, come forward and talk about significant, really significant UFO episodes over nuclear missile installations. Now, Robert had done a tremendous job at, at vetting these guys. They came forward with their real names. They had nothing to gain. Neither of these gentlemen is selling anything. All right, They had nothing to gain. They didn't even seem particularly interested in the attention. But they felt very, very strongly after having seen Robert Salas on Larry King and having seen how the debunkers, and thank you, Frank, for separating debunkers from skeptics. I like to think that, uh, speaking for myself, I like to think of myself as a highly skeptical person uh, approaching this stuff. But um, they had seen what Salas had been put through on the Larry King show. And because they felt that it wasn't handled properly, they actually came on the Paracast to talk about these uh, these amazing incidents. Now, these gentlemen didn't have so, you know, they didn't have physical evidence, they didn't have film, they didn't have footage. You know, they didn't have secret reports, but hey, they were there. They, they, and that we were we were totally happy with the idea with the the concept of, of the fact that they were there. They either in in Patrick's case saw stuff or in Bruce's cases, because he was the, the commander, he had been sort of hearing this feedback coming from his guys in the field about these really incredible things being seen. At the end of the day, with both of those gentlemen, all you had was the anecdotal evidence, but then you look at motivation, you look at credibility, you know, you vet your witnesses properly, and once, once you've done all that, what you have is a story about something that is, of course, it's colored by human perception, and to acknowledge uh, John Keel's passing, you're also looking at the fact that even when you see something and you're seeing something highly anomalous, there's a good chance that what you're seeing is not what you think you're seeing. And it makes all of this so much more complicated. But in the end, when it comes to the reality of the paranormal world and, and all of its manifestations, whether we're talking about UFOs or, uh, or ghostly apparitions or psychic abilities. I mean, most of the time, all we have to go on are stories. This is what the, the field is, and I think that's what makes it so frustrating for so many people. They want something more tangible, but you're dealing with the intangible realm. What do you do? Well, but you, but you made the key points. Uh, in terms of just an anecdotal uh, or anecdotal evidence, 
Uh, how you measure the strength of that is by the witness himself, the caliber of the witness. As in that instance, Hastings had vetted, vetted the witness. You know, who are they? What is their background? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, obviously the, the strength of an anecdotal account is much stronger with somebody in, in their particular position. Obviously they were at missile bases at the time. Uh, they were in the military, et cetera, opposed to the, the park bum down on Main Street. So the, the strength in the evidence uh, relies on the caliber of, of witness in that regard if it's just an anecdotal account. And then the, the strength of the evidence in totality is, is any cooperating evidence that you could add to that in support sure. of the anecdotal evidence. All right, guys, we don't have a lot of time left, and maybe we can focus on a few other aspects of this Roswell thing. And that is, at this point, we hear all the talk, demands for disclosure. Is there any hope at all that we could ever get such a thing to happen i mean if this is black budget secret government secret government level two whatever it's never going to happen unless some external event forces it do you disagree you said it all right there an external event and that quite that may I, in fact i would think that that would happen first uh, and and it and, uh, and it almost has happened on a couple of occasions uh, stephenville's a prime example of that uh, one thing about ufos they don't go away <laughs> and we had O'Hare before that. These incidents don't go away. And we're, we're, we are now, uh, in, in regards to a society, everybody's walking around with a camera phone on their hip. These incidents, uh, particularly the grandiose incidents, can't be denied because of our own personal technology. Man's personal t technology has advanced to a point where we can we can prove things ourselves collectively in terms of uh, our, our personal technology. Uh, will the government will there be a, a disclosure on their own? I don't think so. Not by our government, anyway. Could there be a forced situation because of an uh, an event? I think that's more likely. Personally. I think uh, I'm hopeful at my age that it'd be disclosure soon, but I, I don't anticipate it. I'd remain hopeful about it. But I think the problem with disclosing the UFO situation is that it opens a can of worms. I don't know who in our government would admit to lying for 62 years or better, and that would open up a lot of other areas that have been covered up over the years, Island Contra, Watergate, Vietnam, many other things. And at lectures, many times, if there's young people in the crowd, I will almost demand that they start asking questions and demand answers of their leaders. You've got to realize that a, a recent Roper poll, some 60% of the people polled believe in UFOs, 70% think it was covered up by the government. Those are higher percentages than politicians get elected by. And I think it's time that they start listening to the American public, but I don't see that happening because we have a Congress that's totally out of control. At lectures, I ask people, name five people in the government you respect. I get a blank look back. That's unfortunate because 60 years ago, people respected and trusted the government. It was different. Today, that's not here. We don't have that. And I, I just don't see disclosure happening because of all the other things that would have to be disclosed along with it. It's interesting to look at the attitudes, like in the 1950s, they had the books by Major Donald Kehoe, like Flying Saucer Conspiracy, where he's talking about the silence group keeping secrets of UFOs from the public. And he seemed, as a former military officer, amazed that this would happen, that the government could possibly lie to us. And that was his approach, that they were really well-meaning, and if you gave them the right argument, the right push the right impetus by Congress or something, it would happen. We're seeing since then is that <laughs> the government will do what it wants. 
part of my underground tunnels and bases research, I discovered that FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, is heavily involved in what they used to call and still call the continuity of government. They have over 100 underground locations scattered all over the country that have databases on Americans. They could probably know more about us than our mothers know. And at the old Greenbrier facility, which is no longer in existence because it's, it was exposed, it was disclosed, they had a, a television studio underground with a picture of the United States Capitol in the background where the congressman and the senators underground could address the constituents above ground. Well, that doesn't do much good if we're under an atomic attack and nobody's left above ground to watch television. But these guys were protected underneath. The president is protected. The uh, military has a facility at Raven Rock, Pennsylvania, and there's, there's Mount Weather. There's several other locations where our leaders are protected in need, if needed, but there's nothing for the American public who pay for it, and nobody's asking questions or demanding accountability. It's like the secret base they kept Dick Cheney at when he was right. vice president. Hmm. Right. Well, that's the whole thing here. If there's another agency that's controlling what's going on, we look at the recent world events, of course, the financial crisis, all this stuff that happened, and nobody knew about it until it was too late. We had a recession in December 2007, but nobody knew about it until everything fell apart in September of 2008. What kind of thing is this? Well, you know, I, I spent three years in the Army, and I never regretted that. And we need to remember that these troops are out there for our freedom so that Frank and I and you and Gene and David can, can sit here and badmouth our government. And we have that privilege, and, and I really appreciate the fact that we can do that. I still think this is the best place in the world to live, but I think we have some major problems. Frank, I want to have a response from you. What do you have to say about that? Well, I'm in total agreement. Uh, I mean, we've we've got utter chaos as we speak, and, <laughs> I, I, you know, Dolan, Rich Dolan, a while back said, uh, in fact, I think he said it right here on the show, I could be mistaken, but I, he, he posed the question, you know, is there in fact a ufology? I mean, can we even say that? We've got splintered groups and, and so forth and so on, uh, and, and, and so many voices, and, you know, it's just utter chaos. I look at the government right now with all the things that you just mentioned, and I, and I get the same feeling. You know, it just seems like utter chaos. Years ago, I was back when I was still repping, I was coming back from the Bay Area, and this is when Mickey Rooney was still out and about, and he had done a play in San Francisco, and, and uh, he was doing a radio show right afterwards, and they got into a political talk, and you could you could tell that Rooney just didn't want to go there. And he said, you know, he said, look, son, let me tell you something before you get into all this political uh, nonsense. He says, he says, I think the most important thing that the right and the left and Republicans and Democrats, conservative and, and liberals need to remember is that the first thing we are is American. We're Americans first. And that's what we need to remember. And that always stuck with me when he said that. And, I, and to me, that's where, that's where we need to come from as a country right now in terms of all the chaos and the problems that we, we have. Let's get past the petty bickering and so forth and so on. I really think that we need to take the same look. You know, it's, it's like a war. We don't feel the pain of war anymore. You go back to the Second World War, we were rationing gas. We, we, you, you couldn't find a copper penny. We felt the pain of all these things. If we're involved in a, uh, in a military conflict today, then we need to feel that pain. And we need to come together the same way in, in uh, regards to the economy. I would love to see our president take that stance and say, look, we are in an economic war. 
and it's time that everybody woke up, and these are the things that we have to do to fix it. But it seems like, you know, I wrote an article years ago about the, one of the biggest problems that Americans have, we suffer from short-term memory loss. You know, you can go back, you can look at our history, and we've done most of these things before. We repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And the same can be said, there's a parallel in ufology. Uh, just about everything that's being said and everything we've talked about today has been done uh, by our uh, our forefathers in ufology. All these arguments that we have today and, and all the newcomers that come to the table that pose the question, all these questions, uh, you know, get, get Mosley back on the show. He'll tell you about all this. It's all happened before. <laughs> <laughs> but as Stan Friedman has said, intelligence-wise, the human beings are trying to get into the preschool of the universe. <laughs> to order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order. This is Philip Rodno. You're listening to Paracast with Gene and Dick, one of the most informative shows out there. So listen closely. We have one more session to spend with Frank Warren and Dennis Balthaser trying to educate the juveniles on the planet Earth to become <laughs> one with the rest of the universe out there. And I think we have an awful long way to go before that happens. Well, but that brings up an important point. And, you know, Frank, it's interesting when you say, you know, we have to realize we're Americans first. Because when, when I was uh, 16 years old, I moved back to the United States from having lived in Venezuela for five years and hating it down there. I went there, I was taken there against my will, hated it, and actually ended up leaving my, my family, my media family at the age of 16 to come back to the States. And, I, and I'll tell you this, I had dual citizenship. I actually had a Venezuelan passport as well as an American passport. But when I got back to the States in 79, I got off the plane. And this is a true story, so help me. This has really happened. I got off the plane, and I walk into the receiving area of the terminal, right? I got on my knees, I got on the ground, and I kissed the floor. And I said, thank God I'm back. All right? I really, I did this, and I felt, I, I kind of, I didn't plan to do it. I did it spontaneously, and people were like standing around me, like walking by me, going, "What the hell's wrong with this kid?" And <laughs> and the thing is that uh, you know, and and living down in Venezuela for those five years, where I was constantly referred to by these Venezuelan national kids as gringo, and and I would have to defend the United States, and I did all the time. I would talk to these kids, I would point out their hypocrisy in that they'd be putting down the United States, but boy, you better believe, come Christmas vacation. Especially these wealthier kids, all they wanted to do was go to Disney World, right? This is like the big thing. Our parents are taking us to Florida, to Disney World. And I'd say, you hypocritical little bastards. You, you bitch about the United States, but boy, you all want to go to Disney World, don't you? But the thing is that since that time, I, and, and you know, again, people will say, why are you going off in this political direction with the show? But the thing is, we, we have to realize, yes, we are Americans and we are all humans. We're all participants of a society on a planet and the united states is not in a bubble at this point you know when when like uh, some some argentinian friends of mine said when your housing market goes to hell we feel it down here in buenos aires a and they do and so you know we're at a point now where we have to start looking at things i really believe in the global context and and perhaps start to consider this idea 
that the strains of nationalism, maybe they're not serving us well anymore. And they, they served us for a long time. And we do live in a great country in many ways. But, you know, maybe it's time for us to, to evolve beyond that a little bit. And I think especially for the younger generations coming in that, you know, they're looking at the kinds of obstacles I don't think any of us could have ever imagined. Well, I looking... think we're on the onset of a paradigm shift in, yeah. in many ways, and that uh, quite possibly is, is the central theme. I mean, think about it. Uh, you, you press a button and you have instant information around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes us all earthlings all by itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this isn't like days gone by. So, yeah, uh, God bless the, the next generation because they're going to see a lot of this stuff. Yeah. But the other part of the paradigm shift, of course, will be hopefully uh, with alternative energy and so forth. I mean, there's a lot of things to get excited about. But, yeah, you're right. There's certainly pros to being an American, but we are earthlings, and and that theme is broadening all the time, uh, given our technology and what's going on on the planet. Uh, in fact, it harkens back to disclosure again. Guess what? It may not happen with the United States. It might happen with France. One of the other countries may step forward and say, look, here's what we know for sure. And, and I'm merely of the belief at this point, at this point that, and, and I try to tell this to Bassett more than a couple of occasions, but he's, uh, he wants to hear what he wants to hear. He has selective hearing. That's, that's whatever it is. But, you know, I said to Stephen and his, and his, his ilk, it's like, you want disclosure. What if that disclosure is not what you think it is? What if, if all of a sudden, and, and I really have come to believe very strongly that the reason that we, we are not going to get this disclosure is that even the, the faction inside of the government or the military, that's sitting on this stuff is not going to be in a position where they're going to come forward and state to the world, here's what we know. There are things in our skies that we have no control over. Sometimes some of them come down. What do we understand about the technology? How about nothing? How about we've been spending 60-something years looking at not just Roswell technology, but a bunch of other stuff, and what we know, all we've learned is some humility because, man, how do you deal with technology that doesn't even have instrumentation. How do you deal with this stuff where it, we can't we can't figure out how this stuff is powered? We can't figure out what it's made of. Gee, are the are the craft metallic? What if we told you it's not even metal? We don't even know what this is. This is a type of material that that doesn't come up with any match in our database. We we don't have a clue. I mean, do people really think that these guys are going to come forward and admit that? You have to wonder if those were the exact words that Ramey told Blanchard. What the hell were you thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Now that you you mention that, and I agree with what you're saying, let me ask you a question. Do you think there would be any concern, or would there be a problem with public dealing with that? My personal feeling about that is that, uh, yeah, I think certainly, given that, from what I've seen in my short time on this planet, uh, the power of religion has not uh, uh, decreased, it's increased in the time that I've been on this planet. I think people have a vested interest in, in, in a certain worldview and a view of humanity and our history that if confronted with something that is completely contradictory, I think that there, there would be some real serious issues regarding that. I think that, you know, and I said this on the show before, if, if the... the the mission of the military is to provide a sense of security for us as citizens. I think that to disclosure such information would create a, an aura of a tremendous deep level of insecurity 
And so I think that's another reason for the secrecy is that they, they can't allow the insecurity to rise in a way that would basically maybe not let the government exert so much control over their people. And, and I've really come to believe in my, my, in my life that so much of what happens on our planet is all about control. Control and coercion. And I think that the disclosure of such information would present a real affront to and, and a terrible long-term problem. Because once you let that cat out of the bag, it's out of the bag. You can't, you can't put that one back in. So I think that there's a, there's a sense of conservatism in terms of we don't know what would happen and we don't really want to find out because if it's not what we think it's going to be, this could really get out of hand. So I think that there would be some serious repercussions. I mean, people say that you know they're ready for this information, and, and I keep coming back to you don't know what the information is. You have your preconceived notion of what you think it is. But you know, if humans found out uh, tomorrow that everything that we know as history, religious history, was all a sham that that you know maybe the the the, the human species is a is an experiment gone crazy you people don't want to know that they're, they're going to say well oh, geez don't tell me this don't tell me i'm i'm some crazy you know laboratory project uh I, because why well i'm created in the image of god i you know i, I i'm i'm serving a higher purpose here and i'm not i'm not debating that point all I'm saying is that all of a sudden the, the disclosure of information didn't match the image that humans have built up for themselves. I think that could create a very serious cognitive dissonance that we don't, we, it's hard to even project uh, what the ramifications of that would be. So, yeah, I think potentially it, there, it could very well be a problem, Dennis. Yeah. Well, I think young people have grown up, you know, with Star Trek and Star Wars. I don't think it's a problem for young people. I don't anticipate the panic that they thought they'd had back 60 years ago because people are more educated today. And I think from a religious standpoint, I think we're starting to make a lot of improvement with the Catholic Church has gone public and has extreme interest in this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone senior come out and, you know, admitted that there's probably life in the universe, other life in the universe. The problem we have, as I see it, is the, the limitation of the human mind. And like you said, you know, we have preconceived notions of what would be involved in it. I think the financial institutions would, it would affect, and I think it would have some effect on religions. But I don't anticipate that it would have the panic that it would have had 60 years ago, primarily because people are more educated than they, they were then. Well, and, and some people believe that there there has actually been a priming of the pump, so to speak, in terms of uh, the, the public perception of the UFO phenomenon. I mean, if you go back, say, 30 years and ask 10 people uh, at random on, on the street corner if they believed in life in outer space or life on another planet, the majority would say no, or, or particularly if they believed in little green men. Right. Uh, the majority, uh, the higher percentage would be no. Well, if you ask the same ten people today, uh, in terms of life on other planets, etc., almost 100 percent would say, well, of course there's going to be life somewhere in the universe. Uh, the, the higher percentage now uh, right. is in agreement that there is some sort of life somewhere. At the same time, though, when you know, we talk about the the priming of the people for this, man, just the other night on TV, they had that really terrible movie Signs on with uh, Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix, you know, paints the the whole scenario where you've got the evil aliens coming to Earth to take over, and oh gee, they forgot to look into the fact that Earth is a water planet, and water was poisonous to them. 
you know, truly a stupid movie. Um, or something like Independence Day, where oh, you know, and Gene likes to bring up Independence Day because he loves those those that those directors behind that stink bomb. But um, you know, it, it paints this whole scenario of again the the evil alien. So in 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 a way, you know, we have the close encounters of the third kind mindset. And what that movie created in terms of a certain interest, but you know, if you leave the, if if you're going to parse human reality based on how movies portray things, you know, it's you come up with a pretty ugly version of what humans are about. And I want I want to hope and and pray that we're more evolved than the way we're often portrayed in those movies, especially with relation to uh, non-human life. Uh, I, I want to just hope that it turns out better. Than you know, Independence Day. What do you think, Gene? <laughs> All right, Independence Day. I just thought it was a popcorn movie. Why take it seriously? But isn't it nice to know that you can take an Apple? It was then PowerBook. Now it'd be MacBook Pro. Just- communicate with the alien computer and infect it with a virus so they can't attack us. It kills their shields. Wasn't now we know why he loves it so much. <laughs> it should have been a Windows machine. Would have been more plausible. <laughs> well, that's what the aliens were using. Didn't you know that Bill Gates is an alien? Yeah. Oh, please. Oh, I, I hear a David Icke song coming up any moment here. Don't, don't go. Don't do it. Does he have songs? I mean, there must be songs written about him. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> So anyway, as we begin to come to the end of this session, Dennis Balthaser, what are your plans for the next few weeks? Public appearances, anything you can tell us about? About what? <laughs> are you going to be making any speeches, public appearances, articles, etc. you can tell us about? Well, I, I try to write editorials every other month, which are on 31 websites, including Frank's. And I guess on yours, are you carrying them now? Are you carrying the uh, editorials? Well, we carry the links that anytime someone puts a link in our forums, it's carried. There you go. I've got some editorials I need to get written, and then I've got a lecture coming up at Angel Fire up in uh, northeast New Mexico in September. And I think that's going to complete the year for me. I've had a busy year this year. Uh, I've done two lectures at two Baptist churches here in town, which is always It's got to be busy. <laughs> well, they've had the biggest crowd they have for their senior luncheons for my UFO research lectures, which is always pleasing to me, meaning that people are at least opening their minds to the possibilities. Th- those are always fun, but uh, Angel Fire is one of the, the prettiest parts of the state uh, up in northeast New Mexico, and it's part of, of the secret of New Mexico that people don't know about as far as the beauty of the, the state itself, and uh, I'm looking forward to going up there. Where can they check out your writings? On my website, truthseeker at roswell.com, and on Frank's uh, UFO Chronicles, uh, he posts them practically as quick as he gets them. And, uh, Even appreciate quicker he all sees, the... he perceives by psychic phenomena what you're writing. <laughs> I got well, you I in try to read, Frank. We, I try to we maintain... do have a psychic bond, that's for sure. I love him like a brother. <laughs> <laughs> I try to maintain my research, I, my four areas of research, Roswell Area 51, underground bases, and my research on the Pyramids of Giza. So I try to stay within those four. Once in a while I get off on a tangent and badmouth the, the UFO museum or make comments about some documentary I've seen, things like that. But it's a good outlet for me to, to, to share my research and my thoughts without a whole lot of editing being done to them. Hmm. We have to get into underground alien bases sometime and see what that's all about. Frank Warren, where can our listeners find out more about the things that you're up to? 
Well, of course, the main uh, platform would be the UFO Chronicles. That's ever expanding, and it's it's quite a chore. And as mentioned previously, we are going to uh, get into the podcast fear, hopefully within the next 60 days. Uh, research is ongoing as usual. Interestingly, I was uh, Scott Ramsey has asked me to contribute to his uh, upcoming book on Aztec, and he's asked me to specifically write a chapter on Silas Newton. So I'm working on that. And there's a new uh, UFO magazine coming out that I've been asked to write for. Hmm. I don't want to mention any names as I'm not quite sure of the uh, intimate details, but I agreed to do that. So I'm looking forward to that. And the National Geographic Society asked me to review uh, Seth Shostak's new books. Uh, and I'm a little behind the game on that. That should have actually already been done, but look forward to do that. And and they asked uh, if I could interview him or would be interested in interviewing hmm. him. So I look forward to that. And, uh, and he He's been, any time I've got in contact with Showstack or had a question or anything like that, he's been very kind, and so I'm kind of looking forward to that. So the character we see on TV, that's an act? I, no, I don't think it is an act, quite frankly. The thing that comes to mind with Seth is that he has said publicly that he's not a ufologist and he hasn't really looked in, into things in detail. And I think that pretty much says it all. And, and most of the people that wear the moniker of skeptic, that falls true. And... <laughs> You know, if you want to get into scientific methodology, to me, that, that just axes you right out right there. I mean, you can't even bring a solid argument to the table. So, but again, I, I will give him uh, a fair shake if, uh, if, in fact, we can sit down and, and do an interview, and I'll do the same thing with this book. Fair enough. Gentlemen, Frank Warren, Dennis Ballfazer, thank you both for joining us this week on the Paracast. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. You're both wonderful guests. We really appreciate you coming on the show. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.